Hello and welcome to the Tribal Podcast. We believe that true deep learning occurs when three things happen. You must one, understand, two, remember, and three, deliberately practice your newly acquired knowledge. And this podcast covers the first part, understand. Complete this learning by getting the second and third part at mytribal.com. That's M-Y-T-R-I-B-E-L.com. So together, let's get the key takeaways from this book understood. Our guest today is Mark Coleman, and Mark is more than qualified to speak to us on the podcast. He holds a scholarship MBA from one of Europe's most prestigious business schools. He has over a decade worth of experience in the European Central Bank and Irish Department of Finance. He serves as the Irish Times economics editor and has been an influential broadcaster on News Talk and a columnist for the Sunday Independent. So let's see what Mark has to say about his chosen book, Decide and Conquer. So hello, Mark. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, delighted to have you on it. What, uh, what's the book we're going to be discussing? What are we, um, what are we talking about today? Well, thank you very much, uh, Kevin. It's great to be with you. Uh, the book is called Decide and Conquer, and it is by, uh, we've all heard of Tony Robbins. This is a different Robbins. This is a guy called Stephen Robbins. Right. And it is basically all about making decisions. So and it, it's something we do every day, but we have never, most of us, been actually trained to make decisions. And yeah. that is where probably 50% of our problems in life and business come from. And this book is, aims to solve that problem. Is it fair to say then that like one of the things I think I heard very early on in my career is that making no decision is worse than making the wrong decision? Because if you make the wrong decision, you can at least back out of it. Or, but if you make no well, decision, you're, you're that's kind of... a good question. Now, I would say it depends on the context. And I think the book would would also tell you that context matters so for example in the civil service where i worked um the best thing can be to make no decision because the emphasis is on not embarrassing your minister preserving the status quo and um, not rocking the boat that's not a criticism that's just the way it is yeah um and not making a decision will not you know result in you not getting paid next month because it's a secure paid mm. environment so yeah. hence you tend to see probably an, an excess of non-decision making in the public service because that's the way the culture and the incentive system works for individuals. Now, whether that's good for the rest of us is Shinch Galella. In the private yeah. sector, uh, the bias is very much towards making a decision because even if you make a bad one, provided it's, it's not disastrously stupid, it is something from which you will learn and I don't think you can be successful without making wrong decisions and learning from them in business unless you're extraordinarily lucky and very few people are that lucky. Yeah. There's a great thing that um, we covered a book called uh, Working Backwards. It's about um, Amazon and, you know, the, the two guys were very close to Jeff Bezos and Jeff Bezos will often talk about, uh, uh, what, what did he call it, one-way decisions or, and, and two-way decisions. So one-way decisions is like going through a door there's no way back from it 
and then a two-way decision is obviously you can come back for it if you really need to he said mm-hmm. most decisions are two-way like that you can you can back out of it if it's wrong so yeah i guess yeah, i guess you're right it depends on the it depends on the the context i think that's fair enough well let me let me start off with the book i mean the key key thing is that decisions profoundly shape your life financially emotionally uh, in every single way and a lot of them shouldn't be rational i mean who you fall in love with that's you know you've got to throw rationality out the window there yeah um, but when it comes to business decisions and career um, one of the things that impressed me about this book is it really got across the importance of being rational in decision-making. And it also got across how damn hard it is to be rational. Because what our brain does is our brain is a, a huge database of everything we've learned in the per- preceding number of years we've been on the planet. And it, it programs us to be biased in several ways. First of all, most of us think we're better than we actually are. Secondly, most of us think things are going to be the way they were in the last 30, 40, 50 years we've been on the planet. That's sometimes an accurate assumption, but in the last two years, we've seen that totally thrown out the window. And thirdly, um, we, we develop paradigms of how things work that, you know, it's not a bad thing that we do that because it's basically your brain giving you a shorthand uh, solution to problems so that you don't have to go through the same uh, thought processes every yeah. time. It's a labor-saving device that your brain does for you. But unfortunately, it can often be wrong. Um, your paradigm can be very, very wrong um, yeah. because the context can change and the information that you built up and the view of the world that you had can suddenly be in a, a bad sat-nav for a new situation you're in. And that's what I love about this book. It kind of draws your attention to that and say, and it asks you to basically look at how how good your sat-nav is. Um, and it's often very flawed. Yeah. It's like the Daniel Kahneman book, The Thinking Fast and Slow, where you've got system one and system two. And I can't remember which is which, but like system one is, you know, you make uh, slow rational decisions in system two is when you make assumptions about things like, and I think he gives the example in that book. It's a really, really basic one. He says, imagine if every time you approached a door, you had to figure out how that door works. Mm. It would t- take you forever to get anywhere, but you make an mm. assumption about how this door works. Like, no, I pull the handle down and I push it and I, I assume it'll open. And it's like, mm. it's a very similar thing. I think a lot of us go through life where we, um, you make assumptions about whether going into a negotiation like oh, i've i've met this guy 10 times before i know i know who this guy is or you know mm. a sales conversation or something or um some sort of uh tricky situation in work I think i've i've handled this kind of situation before but actually the nuances are what make it a completely different situation and i guess that's where the rationale comes in to to make sure that you're taking in all the data and assessing it correctly mm. Well, if you if you think about it, I mean, the, the situation of opening the door is a good one because that's a decision of that's what Jeff Bezos would call a two way decision. You know, mm. you, you can actually go in the door and you can come back out it again. And, you know, it's not it's not going to kill you if you don't go through the door physically. Mm. So it's a high frequency, very, very low level of importance of a decision to make. And I guess one it's it's been obvious, but 
it's the best books are the best books because they state the bleeding obvious and they draw your attention to it. Yeah. The time you invest in making a decision should obviously be proportional to the importance of that decision. Your brain tells you that you don't need to figure out how to do the open the door because you've done it thousands of times before. It's automated. It's a hetero. It's a homogeneous decision. Opening one door is pretty much like opening another. You know, by the time you're four or five years of age, you've got that cracked. Yeah. Um. It's very simple, low, fr high frequency, low importance. Yeah. This book is about decisions that are really low frequency. What mortgage am I going to get? What job am I going to take? What business project am I going to take on? They're infinitely more complex. It's not about turning a handle and opening a door. Yeah. It's got, you know, 10 or 20 different dimensions of which you have to factor in. And it has profoundly more serious consequences than some of the decisions you you make could be the one, you know, the level one decisions where there's no going back. Um, and the book sets out, and I can go through it if you want. Yes, please. The issues that you've got to think about. So I think the first thing is increasing rationality. And I guess that starts with what we call the problem paradigm. So, for example, I'm going for a business contract, um, a, a competitive business contract situation. It's going to take me about five days of my working time to put together a bid for that process. Um, that is an awful lot of money. Uh, time is money. That's an awful lot of time and therefore money that I will not get back if I don't win that bid. What I have to figure out is, is that bid rigged? Is that bid already really a false competition where I'm wasting my time? Or is it in fact a, a situation where there's genuine competition? Now, if you're particularly as I've been a sole trainer up until recently, and you're going for bids on your own, and um, it can be easy and human to get cynical and say, the system is loaded against me because I lost the last before, particularly in a friend, we tend to think, ah, yeah, somebody has it stitched, somebody's related to somebody else. Um, and that can be true, by the way. But it can also be true mm -hmm. that actually, you're just not the right uh, bidder for this project. You don't have the background, you don't have the size, or it could be a combination of both. But I think one of the things that I've learned in the last two years in which I've been in business is that, you very, very quickly have to get an accurate paradigm and you have to develop a thick skin and you have to avoid emotional um, emotional automated paradigm. So for example, when you're approaching the door, it's an automated paradigm of how a door works. You know it's an object that's slightly bigger than you are, slightly taller, slightly wider than you are. It's got a handle in the middle. It's an automated vision of reality, which is actually true. And there's no emotion in it. You know, you don't approach a door thinking, oh my God, I don't like this door. Or, God, I love this door. Or, you know, I don't like that handle. I'm not Maybe there are some people like that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, uh, fine if they are. But um, when you're in business, you can br quickly bring emotion into the paradigm. The first key law, law of this book is get that out, get rid of that emotion and challenge your paradigm and make sure your decision-making paradigm is based on fact. And that's really about understanding the problem clearly, writing down the choice you're making, 
and writing down the criteria. So if I'm going after projects, I've spoken about whether I can trust this process. Is it is it rigged or is it just my paranoia? But the other issue that I, that I then face often is, well, what kind of contract do I go after? Do I go after the contract that brings in quick cash? Do I go after the contract that is with a company that I trust and I know that I won't have problems with? Or do I go after the contract that I love doing because it's it's life enhancing and it uses all my skills? Um, I've really got to write down those choice criteria and I've got to write down alternatives um, about what I want. And it could be a combination of those three. So I could say, well, you know, I'm going to spend the next six months going after contracts that are 60% of them. I want them to be good for cash flow because I'm small. I'm starting up. But I don't want to be so cash oriented that I lose interest in my work. So I'm going to make sure 40% of them are is doing the stuff I really want to do. And then I'll increase that 40% over time. And that really is, a you know, I want to throw in that. That's a key benefit that I've got out of that book because that's a simple insight and a simple business strategy that I developed yeah. over the last couple of years. Um, I could have gone after totally boring contracts um, 100%. And you know what? I'd probably be chewing the carpet at this stage and maybe, uh, you know, getting getting demotivated. But I think that 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 element has helped me preserve the balance. The next thing you've got to do is you've got to look at the barriers to decision making. And there are several of them. And what I'll do is so that I don't do all the talking, I'll give you a list of them and then you can come in and, you know, we can talk about one of them. So the biggest one. And there was a book by um, a guy called Napoleon Hill, uh, written in the 1930s, called "Think and Grow Rich." And he yeah. said one of the, the one of the biggest one of the biggest obstacles to business success is fear. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, and he calls fear the devil's workshop, and I like that because if you're if you're a religious believer and you read the Bible, you'll see fear is is actually. You know, we think religion is all about, you know, um, doing good to others, but it's also about, so that there's a lot of good management advice in the Bible, by the way, and one of them is that fear is the work of the devil, right? Yeah. So if you, if you go to the south, the deep south of the United States, and you go into one of those gospel halls, they will tell you that fear is the work of the devil. And you don't have to believe in God or anything to understand that it actually is. It's probably one of the biggest impediments to success. The second one is procrastination. <clears throat> what is procrastination? Procrastination is either not making a decision quickly enough if you have all the information or taking too long to get the information you need. Yeah, I'll park that and we can come back to it. A third one is a lack of time. Now, here, a lack of time, I bring in Stephen Covey. We all know the four quadrants q1 q2 q3 q4 and some people genuinely have a lack of a lack of time that they, they are doing a very good job of managing their time schedule but for most of us a lack of time is simply because we have not prioritized our diary and i would say i spend a good two to three hours a day looking at my schedule every week and changing it and taking stuff from what stephen covey would take would call, I think it's Q4, which is the stuff. Is it Q? Is it Q1? I can't. I know Q2 is the stuff that's. There's the stuff that's urgent and important, 
and there's the stuff that's long-term and important. Yeah. Then there's the stuff that's urgent and not important, like, for example, Twitter and social media, which I know I spend too much time on. And there's the stuff that's long-term and not important. And it is absolutely amazing how if you sit down and look at all of the stuff you've scheduled yourself to do in the next week, how much crap is yeah. actually belonging in the last two boxes. It may look urgent, but it's not actually important. And in some cases, it's not important. It's not even urgent. And yet we're still doing it. So I bet you, I bet any of your listeners out there, if they look at their schedule and use that matrix, and we're just going, we're dipping into COVID, we're coming back into this book in a minute. But if you look at your quadrants, you can save about 20 or 30% of your time this week. And you can devote that to making an important decision. Yeah. Other barriers to making decisions are a failure to learn from the past. Past. And then what, 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 what Robbins refers to as blur. Blur is where you're trying to make a decision and the kids come in and, you know, the dog comes in chasing the cat or whatever, or there's some personal emotional situation, or there's just something that comes in from left field that distorts your thinking. The other, um, the other um, key barrier is overconfidence. We think we're better than we are. And then we tend to have a rosier view of the past than is justified. There, there are a number of others, but I won't list them all. You've got a menu there. If you want to zoom in on them, yeah. you know, we, can, we can expand. Yeah, like, I mean, all of them. Uh, I think uh, just, just a couple of points on a, on a, before we dive into them. But when you mentioned fear, there's something I remember, of, such a random one. But you know Jamie Foxx, the actor? I remember hearing him on a podcast before. He was in, he's in, um, oh, he's in loads of things, but you'd, you'd know him if you saw him. But uh, he, I remember hearing him on a podcast before and he was talking about fear and how fear never really held him back. But now that he has kids and the kids are, you know, are afraid to do things and he would, he would always ask them this question. He'd say, what's on the other side of that fear? Like what, if, is fear the only thing that's holding you back? Well, then that's not enough. Like if it's fear and it's dangerous or it's fear and it's something else, then that's okay. But if it's only fear that's holding you back, then you just have to ignore it and push through. And it's something I say to my kids all the time that like they're afraid to do, like my kids are very young and they're afraid to do things that, you know, young kids are afraid to do. And I say, well, look, if it's only fear, then you have to do it. It's not, it's not good enough. It's not a good enough excuse to not do something. And it's the same in business. If it's only fear holding you back, then it's like, like yeah. me starting tribal. Like if, if, if it's, if it was only fear holding me back, then I go, well, I have to do it. You know? Well, you know, I've been accused of not having enough fear or not being cautious <laughs> enough um, at plunging into stuff. And that's probably, you know, um, a fair comment in some ways. But you're absolutely right. Um, fear invites you to, um, you know, what they say about courage. Courage is not absence of fear. Courage is precisely when you have fear, but you do it anyway. Do, courage do it anyway. is overcoming yeah. fear. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody said to me when I, I, I think I ran for election or something, they said, Oh, you're very courageous. And I said, No, I'm not courageous, I'm just stupid. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. I have just plunged into it. Yeah. There was no fear involved. Had there been fear and I had done it anyway, you could have you could have called me courageous. Yeah. And how do you overcome so so how do you come I would say you overcome fear not just with courage, but with data and good analysis. Um, yeah, that's actually so that's similar to, to 
to what we're saying about like just thinking about what is on the other side of that fear if i was to do the thing that i'm afraid of what are the likely outcomes what's uh you know what's the process going to be and so it's exactly what you're saying there i think about having the data to to back up your decision yeah now there is a great quote by johann wolfgang goethe and goethe he's a great german philosopher and writer one of the most brilliant men in history and he said something profound he said and it's it's kind of mystical he said at the moment when you commit to something the entire universe puts itself at your disposal now a lot of very successful business people that i know have said this to me they have said you know what um actually all this analysis stuff and, and decision making yeah it's important for tactical decisions but it's not really important for the life-changing business decisions of what you want to do. That has got to come from so deep inside you that decision-making is actually irrelevant. And when it does come from so deep inside you, you will know it. It's like falling in love. And when you do say it, and this sounds really mystical, I mean, it's, it's not rational at all. When you do it, you will be amazed at how um, events and circumstances start to cooperate with you. And I have to say, I have to say that I have discovered that. Now, this is beyond decision making. Um, but in answer to the question of how you overcome fear, well, is there a countervailing, is there not only countervailing, you know, what is on the other side of that fear is a question mark, but what is behind you? What is pushing you forward? And is it stronger? And if it's stronger, then you'll overcome the fear. And two good tools to help you do that our data analysis um, and a little bit of courage yeah it's funny you say that about that it is mystical um but that is exactly what happened to me with tribal i was one foot in and one foot out with a previous version of this company and a few a couple of things happened um you know over the last couple of years but there was a, a i remember the moment i i i i started in a job um don't need to go into the details, but four days after I started into the job, the company basically disappeared. And um, I got the voicemail from the woman who had hired me saying, I'm so sorry, like, and, you know, we're, the company is basically going to be gone and whatever. And I remember where I was. I just dropped one of my daughters to school. I listened to the voicemail and something in my head just clicked and said, that's it. This is happening now. This, this, I will no longer be reliant on anyone else for a salary. I'm sick of having yeah. one foot in and one foot out sure. of of doing this thing that I, that I know is my life's task. And that, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. led me to, to tribal and to, to finding co-founders. And, um, it's funny that because that is exactly what happened that the, the fear, everything's kind of dropped away and, I, and a voice, in my head said, this is mm. happening and we're just going to do it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you, you know, if you are making often, if you're making the wrong decisions or if you're making the wrong decisions out of apprehension and fear, life often has a way of bringing you back to where you should be you know yeah. so i've been department of finance and central bank economist which is about as conventional pinstriped um as you can get yeah. as institutionalized as hierarchical as you can get and then within the space of about three years i transitioned through an mba now i hadn't a clue what i was going to do with, with myself i was in frankfurt I had a cozy job, very well paid in the European Central Bank. But I had met the woman that I knew I was going to marry. She was back in Ireland. And I knew I wanted to come home. I didn't have a, a job to go to on the same salary level. 
Um, and I didn't have any certainty in terms that my future career in Ireland when I came back would be at the level of prestige that it was when it was in Frankfurt. But something fundamental kicked in and just said, you're going back. And I had people mm. in friends in the European Central Bank in Frankfurt telling me, don't do it. Don't jump. You've got a great salary. You've got medical insurance. You've got a lovely office. Yeah. I said, I'm not happy. I'm not happy here. I'm meant to be over there with, with Aoife, who's my wife. And I'm meant to be back with my friends and family. And um, you know what? I, I did a I got a scholarship to do an MBA. And that's one of life's fundamental decisions where what I said about Goethe, um, and funnily enough, I was living, I was actually in temporary accommodation at the time, which is called the Johann Wolfgang Goethe Institute uh, uh, Residence. It's a residence for, it's kind of a hotel, apartment hotel. And I was, you know, debating my future. And I was there for a couple of days. And I said, that's it. That, I came across that quote from him. And he said, at the moment that you commit, uh, to something, the universe begins to cooperate with you. And I said, that's it, I'm going home. You know? yeah. um, and that was a decision where this book would have been completely useless. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely useless. But, but every, I wonder about almost here. every decision I've taken since then, uh, which is a lower level of fundamental, still important, but lower level, uh, this book has been invaluable. Do you know what those those moments come like? It sounds like we both had a similar moment where something just clicked and this is this is what's going to happen. I wonder is there data that's been inputted into our brains over the last six months or a year or two years or whatever up to that point where something that all this kind of comes together in your subconscious you go, oh, that's it. This is what's happening now. Because like, I, I didn't have any fear about this. Like there was no fear. There was no, there's no rational decision-making. I just decided this is what my life is going to be now. And it sounds like similar to you like that. You just reached that point where like, could, could you have I, I not done it? Could, like, could, was there a point in your in your mind where you thought, I, no, there maybe a deep, I won't? There's a deep, you know, there are some decisions that are so deep. Um, they're, they've accumulated over years and years and years in your subconscious. And if you've delayed doing them, it's because of fear. You've let fear triumph. Mm. Um, or because there has been some obstacle in the way. And those obstacles are not necessarily a bad thing because... <clears throat> Sometimes the decision is accumulating, but it, it's not yet mature and it's too early to do it. Yeah. Um, when it finally gives way, it can often be at the right time that there was one last barrier in your case. You know, you needed to have that real shock of joining a company and then four days later, yeah. it's not there anymore. You needed that shock therapy. Yeah to remove the final barrier. And it's almost as if the decision, the fundamental life changing decision revealed itself to you. What you will often find is that in the case of those massive decisions, all of the stuff that we're talking about in, in this book, rationality, proper choice criteria, weighing choice criteria, uh, developing alternatives, it is actually happening but it's happening in your subconscious. Yeah. And the reason it's happening is you're in your subconscious is, and, and I'm open to correction. If there's anybody there who has a psychology qualification and can correct me on this, but I suspect with no knowledge of psychology, that this is so because your subconscious deals with the really fundamental, deep personal stuff. Yeah. 
a book that we're talking about is the stuff that uh, you know it's only money it's only career it's only income of course it's important but if you're smart it's not something your happiness should depend on your well-being and comfort certainly um but not your happiness uh, albeit that these things are important um what we might do is move on a little bit to talk about yeah. some of the other aspects of the book i mean one of the yeah. key things is knowing your and i'm getting back to kobe here knowing your risk appetite you know? yes yeah and i think here decision making um the idea that every person can have the same decision making process is nonsense of course they cannot so if i look back on my career my risk aversity we were talking about fear and lack of fear when i was in my 20s i did crazy stuff like i resigned from the department of finance to go to the european central bank in frankfurt i resigned from the european central bank to come back to ireland um with no job prospect did an mba um i then got a great job in the irish times which was economics editor a lot of people would have said that's it you're set up for life you're economics editor of the quality paper country you know you don't need to go off you go play golf your pension secured <laughs> two years later i resigned and you know people said what what are you doing you're going to news talk you know a small growing station um absolutely risky you know like one of those guys who sky these people who skydive out of airplanes and um, with no parachute that kind of stuff now that was me in my 20s and 30. three years ago I took what looks like a similar decision to set up my own business. But in many respects, that was a lot safer because what I was doing is sort of what you're doing is having built up over 20 preceding years, having built up a repertoire and a contact base and a, um, a, a portfolio of, you know, really impressive economic analysis reports, forecasts, you know, media engagements. I suddenly realized that what looked like a risky decision, in fact, wasn't um, because I was moving to a terrain where I was actually much more able to demonstrate my value and extract my value and offer it to clients and get paid for it and get paid handsomely. Mm. And if I was in a job where I'm navigating a hierarchy and it's actually it looks safer, but in fact, it's riskier because navigating a hierarchy um, for people who have drive and enthusiasm, which we both do, can actually be a terribly risky thing to do. Because if you're like us, you want to get things done. And if you want to get things done, you are going to put noses out of joint in a very hierarchical organization. So one of the insights I got from this book is that what looks like risk can actually not be risky. And what looks safe can actually be very risky. Yeah. And if you are the wrong type of person, um, for a particular organization or role, you're in a risky situation. Um, another aspect of this risk appetite relates to a particular decision. I've been talking about career and business risk, uh, but of course, one of the rules in business is you never mi mix business risk with financial risk. So if you have a risky business, you have to be financially uh, cautious and secure. And that's where this book comes in particularly handy because it helps you to set out criteria, particularly financial criteria, um, 
it, it doesn't talk about financial criteria, but it gives you a framework for 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 for, for setting out financial criteria for your decision making. And here is where age does matter because you are going to be more financially um, adventurous, or let's say, less risk averse in your twenties and thirties when you don't have a mortgage, don't have kids, don't have a family, than you will be when you're in your late thirties, forties, and fifties. You are allowed to become a boring old fart when it comes to financial security. There is yeah. absolutely nothing wrong with that. And that's where this book and its particular tools about, you know, identifying your criteria, um, your, your setting out your choices and your alternatives, ranking them, prioritizing them. That's where this book is a really, really great uh, addition. And is um, that is that like a, a pen and paper exercise then to sit down and go, what matters to me? It really what is. You, you know, yeah. it really is. I mean, it's it's you have your your GARC model to borrow something from another course I did, which is you generate um, ideas, you turn them into alternatives, you rank those in alternatives, and then you choose mm -hmm. GA or C. And, you know, it sounds obvious, but so many people don't do it. They try to lump it all in together, and they apply the same logic to a major financial decision that yeah. they do when opening the door. They yeah. assume that this decision should be made spontaneously on gut instinct, Sometimes it can, but if you think of a spectrum of decisions from opening the door, one rank up in importance is what am I going to buy for dinner, you know, what's going into the weekly shopping basket. A slightly higher decision is, well, well, what color am I going to paint the living room? I'm going to have to be staring at it for the next couple of years. And then, you know, all the way up the other end of the spectrum is who am I going to marry? And, mm. you know, that that's where you go beyond rationality and, and deep into the soul. But in between opening the door and who am I going to marry, so in the middle of that curve um, is those are the decisions where you actually need to get out a pen and paper and go step by step. And you know what? In many, of, in many cases, perhaps in most cases, that process will not lead you to the holy grail of the perfect decision. But you know what it will do? It will eliminate the crazy ones and yes. it will eliminate the bad ones. And it will mean that you have boiled it down to two or three decisions, often which can look equally plausible and comfortable. Um, and what that means is that if you've eliminated the bad decisions, you're in the world I spoke about earlier, where, you know, success is part of part of success is taking decisions that don't work out perfectly and learning from them. By getting out the paper, pen and paper and going through those steps, you will be in a situation where the decisions you take are ones you can walk away from if they don't work out, or as Jeff Bezos would say, uh, the two directional decisions. Yeah. And you will eliminate the ones that will permanently cripple you if they go wrong. It, it's like a, I kind of, I, 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 in my head, I'm thinking like a, like a game of chess, like if it's my go in a game of chess I'm, I'm thinking about all my decisions if i do this then he'll do this and then i'll do this and you kind of see how many steps ahead i can see and think that's a crazy idea i'm not going to do that and then you might go to your next option and kind of play that through as far as you can so it's a similar kind of thing like with a pen and paper you think right well, if i do this mm. maybe this will happen and you kind of at a certain point you don't know what's going to happen but you can kind of play it through as much as you can in your head and then yeah. use that can i talk about one thing can i can i talk a little bit about procrastination because yes please yeah. maybe it's my background because i grew up in germany and uh, for the first seven years of my life 
I then went back in my mid-20s to work there until my early 30s. And there's a strong difference in culture and decision-making there. Mm. I think the Germans are much better decision-makers. They're more rational. They tend to gather. They tend to faff around a lot less. What I notice happens here a lot is decision. I think you've hit mute there yourself. Sorry, did you hear? What was the last thing you heard me say? Uh, Germans are more rational. Yeah, they, they are more rational. I mean, we, we've wonderful advantages in this country. But I think they're better decision makers in terms of gathering evidence and, you know, getting off the fence. And the decisions in Germany tend to be more intrinsically about whether this is a good decision or not. What I notice big time in this country, and it's a big feature, is people here tend to base decisions far, far more on how they will be perceived by others, right? It's not about whether the decision is right or wrong. It's what will I look like if I make this decision? Mm. Now, that's not necessarily a criticism because I would say we live in, in a country where kind of community conformity or being part of the group, um, you know, being similar to others is more important than, you know, whether the decision is, is, is materially of benefit to you. It is probably more important in Ireland that this is a good thing to be liked and, you know, be part of a community than it is to be very rich. So, for instance, the lotto ad where the guy wins the lotto or the lady wins the lotto and she spends all the money on a big slidey pool for yeah, yeah, yeah. all the neighbours. Yeah. You know, whereas she could have actually bought a chateau in the south of France and fecked off and enjoyed her, her, her life, but she decided that the community was more important. Mm. So this is far from criticising uh, Irish culture versus German culture. In many ways, the Irish culture decision-making is part of it, it, it. It's very good because it shows that you're part of a community and it's not just you that you don't just want to take the decision for you. But sometimes it can be destructive, and it can be destructive in a situation where um, the right thing to do for you and the right thing to do for, for everybody else is not necessarily going to look good. And we've had so many examples in this country of where that thought process has led to bad, bad decision-making. And I could go into so many examples, but we don't have time. Yeah, it's like... Um everything you've said there kind of reminds me of like of metacognition. It's, it's okay to make a decision, but as long as you know why you're making that decision or what your criteria are and you're, you're kind of doing that pen and paper exercise to write down, well, mm. I'm not just like being reactive to something to go back to Stephen Covey. It's I'm being proactive. I'm, I know mm. why I'm making the decision. I know what my rationale is for this decision, right or wrong. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head that if you, if you've taken out the pen and paper and also, you know, bring in devil's advocates. I mean, I'm a big believer in devil's advocates. Yeah. I had a radio show on news talk and there's so much brainless consensus in, in the, you know, always has been, always will be, I suspect in this country, but I just used to love taking whatever narrative or consensus was out there and saying, well, can I, can I take this apart? turn it upside down, shake it, and see how strong it is. And we mm. don't do that in this country. We do not do devil's advocacy. There's a strong temptation to go with the flow. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it can be so sad to see people going with the flow, and they often ruin their lives by, by doing it. 
Whereas if they get out the paper and really rigorously analyze the criteria that they set out for themselves and make a decision, as you say, there can be no regrets in that decision. Even if it doesn't work out, if it doesn't work out, you can always tell yourself, you gave it the best shot you could and it didn't work out. And those decisions, because as I said before, because that process also tends to strain out the really stupid decisions become patently evident you are far, far less likely to make a decision that you won't recover from. And you are far, far more likely to make a decision that if it does go wrong, you'll learn from it and it'll make you stronger. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think, yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah, I agree with that, that once you've, once you've got some sort of rationale behind your decision, then you kind of have to shrug your shoulders and if it didn't work, it didn't work, but at least I gave it everything I had. I least I put my brain to it. I'm conscious of time here, so let's get back to the book. Tell me more um, about w- what have we not covered in the book that, that he talks about? Well, th- well, there's so much to talk about in this book. I don't think we can cover it all. I think I would, I would take three final points. Um, we spoke about procrastination. Uh, the other, the other extreme is impulsiveness, where you know you you actually don't. Procrastination is where. Excuse me. As I said, you long to get the evidence, or you have the evidence take too long to decide. Impulsiveness is the other extreme. You don't actually uh, take enough time. And impulsiveness, um, you know, we have compulsive buyers, impulsive shoppers. Um, the pressure of time can always be a killer in terms of forcing us into a decision that 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 is wrong for us. And that's where I blend. This, the, 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 this book, Decide and Conquer, with the Covey, and I get out the four quadrants, and I look and I say, this decision that I'm about to sign off on immediately without thinking, is it is it urgent? Uh, it, it looks urgent, that's why I wanted to sign on it, but is it urgent important, or is it urgent non-important? If it's yeah, urgent it non-important, <laughs> if, if it's urgent non-important, be impulsive about it, because it doesn't matter what you decide. Um, you know, impulsiveness is a good trait when it's applied to decisions that aren't really important because you get them out of the way quickly and you leave more time for the important ones. Um, but the, where impulsiveness is fatal, I think it's the third quadrant of Covey, and again, I'm blending this book with Covey, is yeah. where you have a situation where it is a decision of long-term importance and you think that it can be wished away in a couple of seconds, and it's going to come back and bite you on the ass, and you don't realize mm. it. And that's where, you know, knowing the difference is important. Another problem is overconfidence, and that's where the devil's advocate goes from being advisable to essential. Um, don't drink your own Kool Aid. We all do it, I do it, you do it, but, you know, you can do it for small stuff, but for big decisions, don't drink your own Kool-Aid. If it's a big decision and you are feeling confident enough, get somebody to get a wet haddock and slap you across the side of the face <laughs> with that wet haddock uh, several times. And if you're still confident, good. Um, but, you know, it, it again comes down to how how important the decision is. And where has this been illustrated uh, more than I can think of is in the property market 
uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, although I was always optimistic about the economy long term, I wrote books about how Ireland is going to go up and up and up. And it has, despite pandemic, not for everybody, unfortunately, but, but in aggregate it has. But I met so many people. I wrote a book called The Best is Yet to Come. I met so many people think, telling me, oh, that's great. I'm going to invest in more property. And I said, no, no, that's not what my book is about. I'm not telling you to overinvest in property. Um, but there were people who literally bought, um, they bought apartments in Bulgaria. They bought apartments in, you know, Leitrim at the height of the boom. And they were absolutely swept away by confidence that the market was going, going to go up and up. Now, my point was the market will recover in the long term. I was writing 12 years ago, and funnily enough, now we are back at Celtic Tiger property prices. Um, yeah. But those people couldn't wait that long, and a lot of them went under because of overconfidence. And we saw it in the dot-com bubble. I'm hoping now that with the last, the shock of the pandemic and the almost bigger shock of the Ukraine war, um, that people are now going to be a lot more sober about their personal finances. Yeah. And then the final thing is, you know, your personality profile. This Decide and Conquer book and the tools that it recommends should never be adopted to the point of stopping you be who you are. You know, you are entitled to be who you are. And if your fundamental character trait is that you, you know, are the kind of person who will drop everything and go and live with the Amazonian Indians for two years and then drop everything and go and work on a commune in Cuba uh, and then drop everything and go up to pray with monks in a mountain in, you know, uh, Tibet or something. If that's who you are, be that person, you know. But if that's who you are, you are probably not going to be confronted by many of the decisions that would benefit from this book. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Can't say I've ever thought about going to Tibet to pray with the monks, but I understand the point. <laughs> they're, they're out there. There's a few of them. And uh, they're probably happier than either of us will ever be. But there you go. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. Mark, that I, this has been an absolute lesson for me. This has been brilliant. There's so much there to to kind of to think on and to um, to procrastinate on. <laughs> uh, it, there's just, it, yeah, that's it. I think I the one thing I'm taking away from this conversation is that whatever way you make a decision, at least be aware of of your criteria for making that decision. That that to 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 like you said, if you're going to be impulsive, at least be aware that you're going to be impulsive, or that you're making an impulsive decision. It's it's all metacognition and being being aware of your own thoughts. But just just remember the just remember the context and remember the consequences. And and I guess one of the most important things to remember, and I didn't mention it. One of the most important things to remember is whether other people are involved in your decision. Um, and there, that's a whole different ballgame. So, you know, uh, you, uh, consultation is also good. And I guess that's only the only one gap that's missing in this book is a sense that, that how your decisions will influence other people and the extent to which your stakeholders have to be consulted mm. and if you're the ceo of a company with employees and suppliers who rely on you um the the good thing to do and the right thing to do is to build a mechanism that consults them because it's their future too and you might be able to make a decision 
um, and get away with it if there's fallout for their, for them. But in a small country like Ireland, you won't be able to walk down the street um, with your head held high if you don't at least give consideration to the people who end up uh, suffering uh, or benefiting as a result. Excellent. Mark Coleman, tell me or tell our listeners, where can people find out more about you if they, if they wanted to get in touch with you? So I, my company is called Octavian, Octavian Advisory Consulting. And what we do is we work with government departments, local uh, um, authorities, European um, institutions, various trade associations, and we uh, do a range of things for them. Um, we do uh, research and publications, which basically um, promote their interests with government, with regulators. We engage in public campaigns where we hold their hand as they go into meet officials or regulators to advance their cause and maybe negotiate. Uh, and we do media public relations and communications work uh, to basically project their viewpoint to uh, the media and social and the general public. Um, we also work with companies in terms of developing their, their own two areas. One, um, uh, strategic direction. And the second is organizational relations. And we don't do it on our own. We have an absolutely fantastic list of associates with whom we work um, that are at the top of their game. Um, and we bridge our and my back about 30 years across the institutions I've mentioned, the ECB, Department of Finance, Irish Times, IBEC, and so on. We leverage that background, the specific knowledge for associate partners across corporate finance, HR, organizational behavior, others. So, so we all work with others. We, we, we leverage, blend, and we multiply our impact for clients, and we do it at a fraction of the cost that other consultancies are. Where to find us? Our website is octavian.ie, which is B T A V I A N dot IE. And if you put info at in front of that, you can send me an email, and I'd be delighted to hear from you. Excellent, Mark. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. It's been, uh, like I said, it's been a real lesson for me. It's been great having you on. My pleasure. Hey, before you go, just a quick message about Tribal and what we're all about. We believe that true learning happens when you understand, remember, and deliberately practice your newly acquired knowledge. And this podcast just covered the first part. You now understand the key takeaways from this book. To help you remember them, we will send you three interactive summaries that accompany this episode to empower you to remember those key takeaways at the moment of truth. And then to really embed the knowledge from this episode, you can use the dedicated digital action log to set a time and a date to go out into the big bad world and deliberately practice the key takeaways. For all of this and for all of our podcast episodes, head over to mytribal.com. Until next time.